with all of the experience that all of our educators have had with online teaching, whether it be through like traditional educational systems or entrepreneurs, we're able to start to build networks between schools in a way that we've never thought of before to meet the needs of students and educators. To me, it's like the best of all worlds where you have the ability for students to be able to do what I get to do, which is chase their interests, um, but they have a large network of people through which they can do that. You're listening. You're listening to. You're listening to. You're listening to the Learning Futures. The Podcast. Learning Futures. The Podcast. Learning Futures Podcast. On this show, we explore big ideas, key issues, and questions facing education now and into the future, moving from what currently is to what could and should be, including considering serendipities and setbacks along the way. I'm honored to be joined by Kwaku Anning. Kwaku, tell us a little bit about yourself and the work you do. Sure. I'm the director for the Center of Innovation and Entrepreneurial Thinking at the San Diego Jewish Academy. That work falls into three primary buckets. Uh, one, I sort of oversee our IT needs and team. Two, I get to um, partner with um, educators from pre-K through uh, 12th grade to help them find meaningful ways to embed innovation and obviously you know, some technology into um, what they do every day as classroom teachers. And then the third one is that I get to sort of chase after ideas and find ways to connect things that I see, or trends that I see happening in the, in the world to the educational experiences that our students have. So Kwaku, I'd really be interested to hear, I mean, although this shows about learning futures, it's always interesting to hear about the journey our guests have taken to arrive at their current work. So can you share a little bit about your journey? Sure. Back in January of 2000, that was the first time I stepped foot in a classroom and I was a kindergarten aide, which was, you know, crazy. So I was a kindergarten aide in Harlem and I um, was just deathly afraid of 25-year-olds or I think it was 25-year-olds in that classroom at the time. But it was, um, this was a, a job that I sort of picked up and it was at one of the first charter schools in New York. Um, but I went from that position to becoming a music teacher and I taught music for 10 years, K through five music at a variety of different uh, charter schools in Harlem, as I mentioned, Bed-Stuy, Brownsville. And then I went from there to working at, well, in, near the end of the, the, my tenure as a music teacher, I started to attend grad school um, because as a music teacher, you would just have all this extra time that classroom teachers wouldn't have. It'd be rare that a class would start their day with music. Um, and so I would just have a ton of built-in time. And so after, you know, you get tired of like doing your taxes and, and playing instruments and, you know, writing songs, I was like, oh, you know, someone would come in my room and say, hey, you know, I can't connect to the Wi-Fi. Can you help me? I'm in the middle of teaching. And I'm like, yeah, sure. No problem. Or I was going to do this thing in my class and I didn't have a chance to look at this program. Can you look at it really quickly and let me know if this is something that I can, you know, that, I, that you think I could use? I'm like, yeah. And then, you know, I started getting a, a 
bunch of requests this way uh, that, that were like that. And then eventually this turned into, oh, well, maybe this could be a job. Because as a music teacher, you you sort of hit a you hit a glass ceiling pretty early, where there's usually only one of you at a school site, and you realize, okay, this you know this is could be the next twenty years of my life. Is this what I want to do? And I was reaching this point where I was like, I think I want to do something else in education. So when I went to grad school, and then you know near the end of grad school, I took a position with this company that was a vendor for New York City public schools. And so my role was a tech consultant for um, middle schools in New York City that were part of this uh, federal program called the Connected Learning Grant, which took refurbished desktops from corporate um, corporate environments and gave them to middle school kids and also partnered that with giving them either free or extremely discounted um, internet access. And so my role was to go to these different school sites. And um, so I, you know, these different, these different locations, and I would go to each site once to twice a week. And it was everything from helping the schools to build out their initial websites, to also working with teachers to help them to find ways to connect what they were doing online with uh, what they were doing in the classroom. And so I, I had that job for a few years. And then, and then I went back to one of the charter networks that I worked at. And I worked there as the assistant director of digital learning, which was a slightly different role because it was more around working with, at that point, I believe there was 24 schools across Rhode Island, Connecticut, and New York, and coordinating with each school. And it was more tech focused. And then after that, I decided to take a left turn and I took a job at a private school in Memphis, Tennessee, something, you know, it's basically an innovation director role, which was similar to the job that I have now. And then I've been in my current position for three years here in San Diego. That was the longest description. So I apologize. No, I love it. I love it. And I love the serendipitous pathways that you've taken on your journey. Um, it's really interesting um, starting out working with kindergartners and then music education and technology and finding yourself as director um, in the Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurial Learning. And so from kind of your journey and your vantage point, what do you see as kind of one of the key or pressing educational questions or issues that you're addressing in your work currently? That's interesting. I mean, I feel at work, the thing that we are like, at least this past year, we had, I hesitate to use this term, but a bit of an equity challenge. How do you create an equitable experience between the students who are attending school face-to-face? We've been open since August and the schools who are, or the students who are attending school virtually. Um, how do you create the balance between those two things? That was the largest challenge that we had. And we, you know, addressed it in several different ways as far as um, facilitating virtual pieces or facilitating roles for people who weren't in the room. So they still felt um, attached and and, and engaged within um, larger um, long-term projects within classrooms. And it, when you asked that question, I hesitated because I feel like the larger question around this is actually access and that the access gap is really defining the achievement gap at this point. And in the, in the setting that I currently work in, access isn't the issue, but I see it as an issue with a lot of my colleagues who are still within the charter and the public world. 
Um, and so I think as, you know, from a larger, from a larger perspective, I feel like access is really the question, but also the, um, the idea of, of sort of defining what school is post COVID does school just exist within a building. Does it exist within a specific space? Does it exist online? How do we define what a learning experience is? These are the, I think these are the things that I'm sort of wrestling with and with that redefinition, how does that work? for our students? How does that work for our teachers and our parents in this way where the stress and the joy is also equitable? Yeah. And let's unpack that a little bit. I think you mentioned that that you are becoming aware of um, the issues of access and equity, um, particularly during this time when we have folks that are, are trying to learn and stay connected remotely. And, it, and you were talking about, you know, particularly in the case of projects. Um, and in your current setting, it's not so much an issue of access, but you're seeing this on kind of the broader educational landscape, that this is this is a, a key challenge. So that's the first part. And then the overarching component that you were talking about is this kind of rethinking, uh, an importance of rethinking and reimagining what education could be. And so I'd be interested, and I think our listeners would be interested in hearing how would you reimagine education? What do you see as kind of the new possibilities for education and how that vision might actually help address some of these issues of access and equity? What I notice specifically in my son's class is there's always one or two moments where a kid's just a kid has to say to the teacher, like, I can't quite hear you. It's breaking up. Or I can't do that because I'm on an iPad or I'm on this device and this device doesn't display the thing in the way that you're describing it. Not every family has the access to the internet in the way that they need it, because a lot of that, if you think about it, is based upon the neighborhood that you live in. That determines the level of internet access that you have. Or even if you're in a development versus a standalone home. Not every family has devices that are functional enough for students to be able to take part in class on the same level as other kids in the class, which is crazy, you know, and I, I mean, that's why I take, I take my school out of that where there was a lot of stuff that we just sent home to families saying, this will be your child's device. That is not the same in every school. And then finally, not everybody has the, the means or the ability or the time to either be with their child in those school settings, which you kind of have to, depending on the age in a virtual setting, um, or the ability to bring someone else to, to be in that setting with them. And so all of that equals to me to a, a, a tremendous discrepancy between educational experiences, not only between schools, but in between classes. It's, it's amazing that in 2021, access to internet is an issue anywhere, but especially here in this country. But it is. And what that does is that it robs the opportunities from certain students to get as much out of an educational experience as they would or as they should. You know, if I were to pivot to, from that to what the ideal situation is, it would be an equitable increase to broadband access throughout every community, not just wealthier communities or suburban communities versus urban communities. Uh, I think the first step as far as being able to um, make sure that all students can access a virtual setting in an equitable way. And so I, you know, and I think part of my job is sort of 
making these educa- educational guesses or bets. And so I kind of have the theory that virtual learning by proxy of its convenience isn't actually going away anytime soon. It might in a lot of settings, but for, for instance, this piece of virtual learning might not just disappear once everyone's back in school. Not to mention, you know, people who maybe have injuries, um, who for some reason are sick, but can't attend school, but are well enough to still learn. There are lots of, you know, there are lots of examples of why this won't go away. And then, and that's on the, you know, just on like, let's say the public side, on the private side, I think a lot of families have gotten a taste of, of the convenience of, well, wait a minute, I, I can we can, you know, go to our, you know, our beach house or, you know, or go to another state to go visit family. Um, and we aren't necessarily dependent on the school schedule. And as a result, I know that a lot of independent schools are now looking to open up a virtual part of what they do, not to the way, not to the sense of um, cutting into their face-to-face crowd, but more as a way to connect with students who would want to do something either in an ancillary way, let's say they're being homeschooled, but they're like, oh, well, I'd like to do this because this sounds interesting, or to um, create a space for students who like to be part of the school community, but love the autonomy of taking classes in a way where they have a lot more control over their time. So let's uh, let's explore this a bit more. And, and in your bio, you know, on the South by Southwest Edu website, it, you're described as a professional wanderer, which I think is a is, is a very compelling and lovely title. So let's kind of tap into that. And if you can kind of, if we can do some wondering and think about, you know, as you're as you're kind of conceptualizing and wondering about, okay, if we were able to provide more equitable access to folks what would those educationals or what could those educational experiences look like how do you envision and as we're kind of moving this is the the learning futures podcast so i'm going to kind of embed this in in a question we always ask on this podcast which is to invite you to kind of speculate and wonder and wonder with us about what the possible futures could look like and so we talk about you know what is a potential bad future for education, particularly as we're coming out of COVID and, and we're, we're kind of wrestling with these issues with tech and access and educational experiences? What's a good possible future and what's a beautiful mm. possible future? Let's start with the bad, the bad future version. There are aftershocks to COVID where there are still moments where kids have to, you know, people have to quarantine at home for one reason or another, you know, um, and these issues have not been resolved, which creates a larger, um, which creates a larger access and then essentially achievement gap. Um, And as a result, you have less people who are connected to the educational experience and are able to uh, transcend social classes through um, just the, the public utility that we have, which is, which is public education. Um, and if you are, it turns into more, which is hard to imagine, but more of a case of the haves and the have nots 
when it comes to education. If you're, if you're in the right neighborhood, you're going to be okay. If you're not, well, is there even a point? That's, that's the worst case scenario. Um, I mean, we can go down that road even further, but you know, I think we all do enough doom scrolling uh, these days as it is. Um, the good case scenario is that yes, these aftershocks are, are um, a reality of our life, but um, we learn from this scenario and we are, and we're, and we're also in this really weird place. I don't think I'm trying to think of the last time I actually, I actually witnessed this where education is getting a ton of funding because through this experience, people um, are seeing the value of education, if not only through the value of creating space for parents to work to maintain our economy. It's not their true value of education, but people are seeing that. So like, well, schools need to be open. And so schools need to be funded. They need money to be funded. They need money to make sure that they can create the accommodations needs to open. But then additionally, also money, I think, is being shared specifically in public school settings to ensure that schools are prepared for the next version of this. And so that is, is that can be as bare boned as, as making sure that schools have enough money to be able to supply any student who doesn't have a, a, a device with bare minimum, a Chromebook or an iPad, depending on what their age group and their you know academic needs are. And then also provide enough training um, for teachers because, you know, the first time we were caught by surprise. Um, but now we've, as collectively as a country, every educator has gone through a, um, a sort of learn on like an on the job training process around online teaching. And there are portions of it that people dislike and there are portions that I know that they're sort of taking away from it and thinking, all right, this is great. I'm going to add this to a level of my in-person te- my in person teaching. Um, that is, you know, that is, I guess, the good version. And then the great version, um, and this is where it really gets interesting, is that with all of the experience that um, that all of our educators have had with online teaching, whether it be through like traditional educational systems or entrepreneurs, we're able to start to build networks between schools in a way that we've never thought of before to meet the needs of students and educators. And, you know, the example of this, um, I gave this example at work the other day, you have three kids in your entire school who want to take Japanese. Having three kids who want to take Japanese doesn't warrant hiring a Japanese teacher. But if you are able to connect with, with, let's say, three other schools that each have three kids, and there's an online space where that can happen, um, and that's taught by um, an independent body, but ideally it's folded into um, the budgets for the school so that families aren't coming out of pocket for this. Um, and, and those experiences can be catered to in that way. Uh, that to me is the best case of this scenario um, because in a way it's, to me, it's like the best of all worlds where you have the ability for students to be able to do what I get to do, which is chase their interests. Um, but they have a large network of people through which they can do that. Yeah, I love that. And I, the word that's coming to mind in listening to you speak is this word of connection. I mean, even in your own kind of personal experiences with your son, in thinking about students more broadly and, and issues of access, but also in this kind of beautiful future that you imagine of 
finding ways to connect. And again, part of your bio talks about connecting the dots between education, tech, art, agency. And so can you help our listeners kind of imagine what what does it look like when you connect the dots between these different features? I mean, people are probably already thinking about the connection between education and technology, but what does it look like when you start connecting things like the arts and student agency and student interest? Oh, that's an easy one. I, this won't be a long-winded answer. Um, it looks like the creative class. I had a student uh, approach me the other day and she's like, I'm really interested in in working on a project that involves uh, politics and technology and leveraging technology, you know, in politics in, in a good way. When you're making these connections, the exciting slash frustrating part is that there isn't the thing that you picture like, oh, when it looks like this. And that to me is the exciting part. It is it, when you're able to connect these things, you, um, I think you're able to tap into this beautiful ambiguity. Um, that comes out as a solution, but not necessarily as something that you would picture or even something that you initially thought that you needed. But once you realize that something like this exists, you can't live without it. Yeah, I love that. And I love beautiful ambiguity. I think that's that's such a, a, a powerfully generative idea. And the idea that you're, the ideas you're talking about where, yeah, we typically in education don't think we have the resources to connect just, um, you know, isolated student interest or a couple students who are interested in something, but thinking more broadly um, and in kind of being willing to step into the beautiful ambiguity, I think the, the horizon of possibilities opens up. So in the, in the time that we have remaining, uh, is there anything else you'd like to highlight about the work you're doing, the vision you have for teachers education um, that we haven't covered? The one thing that's that's sort of being um, overlooked is sort of the mindset part of this. A lot of people are like, I can't wait to get back to normal. I can't wait for this to be over. And I think um, uh, I think that the power of this besides the network is is the reframing of the experience. Like, man, that was rough, but I'm I'm really glad that I've got through this because I, what are the realizations I'm coming out of this with? And that I feel is like one of the, like that has been like the largest bucket of work where, I, uh, you know, currently, which is helping teachers to reframe it and really almost look at this, which is hard because there's trauma involved with it, but with a sense of pride and also a sense of reflection and then being able to take that and move forward with it. And that, with that reframing piece None of the innovation or I guess the good scenarios can happen without the reframing because then otherwise it always turns into, oh my God, well, this is going to happen again. And any of this innovation is, is wrapped in fear. Yeah. And I think that's such a hopeful way of thinking about this and kind of disrupting the idea that there is a return to this thing called <laughs> normal. And really it's about finding beauty and the ambiguity that we constantly live with. And sometimes we live with in more pronounced ways, like, you know, through a, a, a global pandemic, um, but that there can be hope and joy and possibility, um, even in these really challenging, uncertain times that we face right now and, and moving forward. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure our listeners would love to learn how to connect with you to learn more about the kinds of things you're working on. What are some things you can point our listeners to and we, we can drop them in the show notes as well? Sure. Um, LinkedIn is always 
great. Uh, it's probably probably the best way to get in touch with me or also Twitter. So my Twitter handle is at Kwaku1. I'm sure you'll add that in there. But I, you know, I answer all of uh, all of my DMs, um, and it's it's really a great way. Either one of those uh, those pieces is a great way to sort of kick things off, and then after that, it's you know, um, it's just sort of either connecting over phone or email and going from there. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Kwaku, for joining us on the podcast, and that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to the Learning Futures Podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information and see you next time. The Learning Futures Podcast is produced at Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at Arizona State University. Executive producers are Dr. Sean Leahy and Claire Gilbert. The show is produced by Dr. Clarine Collins and Karina Munoz-Baltazar. Audio production provided by Claire Gilbert.